Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Robin M. Morris titled Goldwater Girls to Reagan Women, Gender, Georgia, and the Growth of the New Right, published by University of Georgia Press. Dr. Morris is an assistant professor of history at Agnes Scott College. Her area of academic interest is gender and the political realignment of Georgia after World War II. Her work has appeared in Entering the Fray, Gender, Politics, and Culture in the New South. Robin, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. What is a Goldwater girl and what is a Reagan woman? Oh, I I love the Goldwater girls. They were young women who wore these little girly cowboy outfits and campaigned for Barry Goldwater. So with the title, what I wanted to get across was that the women both matured with the party and they also matured the Republican Party, that they shifted together so that by the time of Reagan, we've gone from sort of dressing up in costumes to being um, some paid consultants. So I was hoping that the title would get that growth across. Oh, yeah. That's the time, like this period, this time, like incubation period in a way of the new world. Yeah, that's that's also pretty much the time frame of the book from chapter one to chap to to the end the conclusion um that's uh, is also sort of lets you know what to expect there's a little bit before barry goldwater um and a and then a little bit to bring you up to the present but yeah it's really the that sweet spot of you know the 60s 70s 80s yeah so are women important to the rise of the new right absolutely i really believe that you can't understand how we get to the new right without understanding women. And this is one thing that really makes me crazy when I hear people talking about um, looking at the new right through Newt Gingrich or Jerry Falwell or uh, Barry Goldwater or Ronald Reagan without giving credit to Phyllis Schlafly, for example, and all of the women who we should know the names of at the local levels. I think we really need to give that credit to local women at the grassroots, not the AstroTurf. I know a lot of people like to say that the right uses AstroTurf, not true grassroots. Um, but I, I, what I want to show is that this really is a story of local women doing that work day to day, shifting people's minds, shifting voters' minds. So yes, I think you really need women's stories um, to understand where we get the new right. I totally agree. And I think that the there's this bias, and I think it's the bias of the uh, the historians who write this, and it's also the bias within the Republican Party itself. Mm-hmm. you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I do think that in, in one sense, by the end of the book, what I say is that the women 
are almost too uh, too successful because it's hard then for women to run for office um, because they've been so successful at defining themselves as mothers or as housewives in these um, maternalist roles. Um, so it's it gets to be hard then to to have the party imagine them in another role as as the candidate as the um, nominee for for a position. So I do think that they become the victim of their own success. Um, and sorry, I'm forgetting the first part of your question. <laughs> I just was thinking about the bias and the bias yeah. within history itself that how do women get overlooked? Oh my gosh. How do the stories oh, that you're telling me. get overlooked? Yeah, this makes me so crazy when people who identify as feminists and feminist historians don't want to give conservative women the credit for being able to make up their own mind, that they're saying that it's the preachers who are telling them what to believe or the husbands telling them how to vote. But what I found was that it's these women who are meeting with the preachers and giving him the text to preach from, to talk about why they should um, vote, why the preacher should be against the Equal Rights Amendment, that they are recruiting the ministers into the movement. Um, it's not the other way around. It's not that the husband is coming home and saying, honey, this household is Republican now. It's that the woman went to a Republican meeting and is then talking with the husband over dinner and saying, this is what I learned about the Republican Party. So I really think it's important for not just historians, but for everyone to understand that conservative women are making up their own minds. They do have agency. Um, and and we need to listen to what people are saying. Um, and yeah, that is that is definitely been a problem um, and a bias that people have brought um, when approaching conservative women or thinking that conservative women just don't know what's good for them. Um, it's just so it's it's actually really offensive to think about you know this this um, sort of way of approaching conservative women as having childlike minds rather such than such an important point. Such yeah. an important point. So, what motivated women to become active in Republican Party politics? Um, it's different um, and it changes over time. So in the earlier years of the book, um, the 50s and 60s, there's some women, uh, one of my favorite women in the book, Catherine Dunaway, um, gets involved in Cold War politics um, and as a grandmother. So everything she's saying is saying like, as a grandmother, she opposes the fluoride in the water. Um, or she'll go and talk about uh, nuclear disarmament in front of the Senate, which I think is when she met Phyllis Schlafly, although Phyllis couldn't remember when she met Catherine and um, Dunaway had already passed away by then. So, but I think that might be where they met at the Senate. Um, so for some of them, it is the Cold War and it is this idea of raising an American child and they're framing themselves in these maternalist politics. Later on, some of them get pulled into it over school desegregation and busing, and some women get get pulled into that and thinking about their role as mothers and room mothers and PTA moms. Um, so they're getting pulled in through those politics. 
And then some of them come in for the Equal Rights Amendment, um, opposing the Equal Rights Amendment. So there's different reasons that women come into um, the parties. And then, uh, you know, in Chapter 1, a lot of them are joining the Republican Party as a social movement. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of different reasons that people vote, just as many reasons as people vote today. That's ex Those are the reasons why people are joining the party then, too. Yeah, because you even talk about them having the, the Tea Party politics, and we think of Tea Party politics in a very different context now. Yeah, but there was Tea Party politics in the 60s also. One of the most effective organizing strategies and recruitment strategies for the Georgia Federation of Republican Women was called the Two-Party Tea Party, um, where they would have these middle-class women um, over to each other's houses and serve tea, or she did point out, the, the organizer of these events did point out that it could be grapefruit juice to stick with the diet of the day. Um, and just get to know your neighbors. And at these two-party Tea Party events, um, they would also introduce the Republican Party. And it's important to remember that at the time, Georgia was a one-party state. It was a solidly democratic state. So they call it the two-party Tea Party to introduce women to the two-party system. They're not even trying to convert them all the way to Republican, just sort of gently introducing this and getting to know your new neighbor. So yeah, yeah they have some really smart strategies for organizing in the book. And this leads into my next question about the style of women as in politics. So do women have a different approach to political organizing than men do? Yeah, well, I think um, they can. Um, I don't want to say like generally all women are different, but I think what I see, um, what I saw as I was writing this was that so many of these women were very aware of what they, where they could be in politics and where they could organize. So one of the women in the book is Lee Agu Miller, and she is so good at framing politics as women's work. So, you know, she says it's never ending, it's really tedious work. This is what women do, right? They're used to that. Or women are used to gardening and you plant seeds and you, you know, plant the idea and you grow the voter. So she's always putting this in the language of women's work. Um, and she also talks about how they are very, how women socialize so much. So it's a very natural thing for them to come together. What's interesting when you look at the men in the Republican Party versus the women, um, the men are running for office, they're thinking of the big fundraisers, um, they're doing sort of the big showmanship of politics, whereas women are doing that day-to-day -day grunt work, registering a voter, educating a voter, making sure that voter gets out offering a babysitter so that the person can get to the polls, um, making the phone calls, crunching the, you know, they were the computers before we had all this computerized data. They would get the raw data and figure out where to go, um, knocking on the doors. So yeah, I think at this time, women's politics is more local, it's more grassroots, and it's extremely effective. Yeah, I was thinking about all the the door knocking you're talking about, the surveys, those phone surveys, people yes. calling the house to take a, a phone survey, which was very, I thought, really exposed this difference between male and female kind of perspective mm -hmm. of what's an effective and comfortable, what's comfortable for them in organizing and reaching out 
to their neighbors as voters, asking them how much money they made. You know, yeah. what was your what's your household income? Yeah, I'm not asking that. Yeah, yeah, they would be very nervous. Sometimes they would ha ask the surveys and then drive by the house and guess how much you know, which of the three categories the person fell into um, just based on the house because they didn't want to ask that because remember, they're also going to church with these folks um, and they don't want to get too much into people's business. Sometimes they already knew people's business. Um, but yeah, it was really, really effective for them to be doing these surveys. Um, and what we're talking about is in both 64 and 66, the women provided the labor to do these telephone surveys um, to figure out where the Republican pockets might be and where the strengths might be, and then which places do you target to get out the vote. Um, so they were doing a lot of education, making sure people knew Barry Goldwater's name, making sure people knew um, Bo Calloway, who ran for governor on the Republican ticket, making sure they knew his name. Um, and and they they do such an incredible job of introducing the republican party and getting this out there and targeting exactly you know things that computers have a hard time doing now they were able to do through these phone calls and remember this would have been on a rotary phone so these phone calls took a while um and no answering machines um, but yeah, really, really getting down and, and drilling down and figuring this out to the point that their numbers were better than some of the other political consultants who had come into the area. Um, so there was one case where um, a campaign manager had told the women, I don't need your numbers. I don't trust women's numbers. And it turns out they were right and he was wrong and his candidate lost. And that campaign manager was named Newt Gingrich, by the way. So he... He, he should have listened to women yeah. back, back in the day. It seems, too, that they that the women in your book had a different way of understanding that data, mm. understanding what that data could mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, they would also ask a lot of open-ended questions and figure out what language people were using to talk about something. Um, so... You know, they would also know more about the community. So the um, the survey company um, that designed the questions for them was telling them things like, be sure you call after 6 p.m. It's better to talk to the male in the household. And these women are sassy and they were writing back like, no, the women know the politics down here. I'm talking to the women. Or, you know, if you want to reach a man in this community, you got to reach him at noon because that's when the farmers come in um so they were showing them like we know this area better than you and we are going to do it our way um so they also were not obeying all the rules which i love about them <laughs> yes they were pretty sassy they were very yeah yeah very sassy you know it's very interesting to me too how this fits into like the longer history of women in political organizing and do women understand politics differently than men understand politics as voters when you go back to the you know when you go back to like the even the 19th century where one of the arguments against suffrage in the 19th century was well women are just going to vote the way their husbands do yeah 
and that the suffragists argued that men care about money, men care about power, women care about what's going on in the school district. Mm -hmm. And if the water's clean and if there's a playground, Mm -hmm. I thought that was carried into what you found. Yeah, yeah. And the the way women are talking about um, the issues that they're doing, it's also that um, I found that women became a loophole for men. Um, So any male candidate in Georgia had to endorse the Republican, had to endorse the Democratic Party because that was, they were clearly running as Democrats. Um, So in 1966, for example, I found a candidate who was saying, of course, as a Democrat, I support Lester Maddox, who was the firebrand segregationist, but my wife has her own mind and she's supporting Bo Calloway. And let me tell you why my wife thinks Bo Calloway is the better guy. And so she's this loophole for for her husband to be able to endorse the candidate he wants to without losing his place in the Democratic Party. But yeah, there were also a lot of women who would be talking about school desegregation. Um, I have a chapter about a, a um, a program they did called Operation Linden Ear, which they did with the National Federation of Republican Women in the 1970s, and it went nationwide. So it means that school desegregation and school busing, as we know, is not just a Southern issue, but they're trying to figure out how do you talk about it in Georgia? How do you talk about it in California? How do you talk about it in New Jersey? Um, And that's what this data that they were getting and giving back to the White House um, is is finding out for them. Um, And they are really emphasizing motherhood with this. One thing that I I believe happens in this time period because of these women, they figure out how to take these Southern politics of race, conservative Southern politics of race, and remove the language of race, maybe not the uh, intent, but remove the language and put in gender. Um, So instead of talking about miscegenation or, you know, the fear of interracial dances, they start talking about the role of the mother. Um, the, the mother has to be able to get to schools when her child is sick. Um, so they're, they just shift the language, but not the intent. And that makes it easier for the nation to adopt these Southern politics of race, right? It becomes more palatable. Yeah, it's much more palatable. Do you think also because this was during the time of the second wave of the feminist movement that they were reacting to that as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that they are reacting to that. Um, and I think a lot of that comes because so many of these women that I'm writing about were very politically engaged and they were also housewives. And for many of them, they'd grown up um thinking that being able to stay at home with the children was the American dream. Um, So they weren't, they, they didn't define success as being able to get into law school or get into med school. And I think the feminist movement was very late in recognizing um, housewives as having made an intentional choice. Um, 
so it's you know judy carter starts up the the president's daughter-in-law starts up housewives for era in i think 77 76 77 somewhere in there um but prior to that you know the women I'm writing about feel like they have been left out of the feminist movement, that they have been insulted by the feminist movement. Um, and just like we see today, the most extreme examples are the things that went viral then. Just they didn't have Twitter or Instagram for it to go viral. But, you know, as soon as someone made a comparison of marriage and prostitution, like they photocopied that and it went around. Um, if there was any kind of pornography talking about feminism, that went, that made the rounds. Um, you know, they had, they, these Xerox machines were running all the time. Um, so yeah, I, they they did feel left out of, of the movement and disrespected by the movement. Absolutely. So what did the surveys of Black voters when they did these surveys and these door knockings and all this organizing, what happened with their contact with black voters to add that racial component? Yeah, yeah. Um, so in many cases, they would, the women would, as volunteers and like I said, very sassy, sort of deciding what they would do, they would decide that the black voters' voices didn't matter as much. So they would write in there, like they said they were white, I know they were black, um, I'm not counting this one. Um, or black voters would also be very feisty in this and they would get in there and and say, you know, well, in that case, someone claiming to be white, even though the the interviewer believed they were black, but also someone saying that they would vote for Stokely Carmichael over um, over Barry Goldwater. <laughs> like, well, yeah, they probably would. Um, so, yeah, they were not necessarily recruiting. They weren't looking to black voters, which is also interesting because there was a very strong group of black Republican women in Georgia at the time. And they these women called the Metropolitan Club are really trying to walk this line of being both black and Republican. And they're trying to convince the Republican Party to reach out to black voters. They're trying to convince black voters that they shouldn't be a one party race. Um, and at the same time, they're not really welcomed in too many of the the Republican women's events. Um, they're sort of left out with and they're they're opposed to Barry Goldwater nobody knows what to do in 1966 when you have lester maddox who had branded a pistol at black preachers trying to integrate his restaurant and bo calloway who had voted against the civil rights amendment the, the civil rights act there's really not a progressive choice in that case um so yeah it's sort of a it's it's a moment when black voters in georgia are left out of the politics and are needing to find their own way. There is a third party candidate that sort of rises up and he's moderate in that he's not as extreme as either of these very extremes, but he's also not extremely a progressive candidate either. Um, so yeah, there's Republican women who are doing this very hard work um, and trying to inspire black voters and trying to inspire them to join the Republican Party, but it's very hard work for them. 
It is tough. It's tough, but I always think that the Republican Party really missed an opportunity. Oh yeah, because they have they could have grown that part of the constituency at that time had they taken more made more effort. Yeah, they embrace black voters. A it's a natural fit. It's a natural fit for the socially conservative mm -hmm. aspects. Uh, the the socially conservative black voters. Yeah, probably yeah. have loved and to have been in Republican voters. Yeah, one of the one of the women um, sort of wrote this platform for them, saying this is why Black people should be Republican, um, and really tried to remind the Republican Party, don't give up on the Black voter. Um, and she's very, very frustrated in the 1970s. Um, one of the photos I have in there that I love is um, a float that the Metropolitan Club did at the uh, July 4th parade in Atlanta, where they have these um, black beauty queens um, presenting the accomplishments of the Republican Party for black women, for black voters. So they have a Miss 13th Amendment Queen, Miss 14th Amendment Queen, Miss Emancipation Proclamation Queen, Miss Civil Rights Queen. Um, and they're all on this float pulled by a station wagon with the witted sides on it. It's fantastic. Um, still trying. And and the, the woman who led this club, Evelyn Frazier, um, I found her still being a Republican in the 1990s working for George W. Bush. So she sticks working for George H.W. Bush. So she sticks with it. And she's always still trying to have this voice as a black woman, a business owner, saying that there should be a place for, for her at the party. So let's talk about Phyllis Schlafly, who has had such a renaissance of recent years. And so she's receiving a lot more attention. There's a documentary from Hulu, Mrs. America, which really um, talks about her life. And so she's become more well-known, I think, among younger people. Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking about Jill Lepore had, dedicates a number of pages to Phyllis Schlafly's work in her book, These Truths. How do you assess Schlafly's legacy? Oh, wow. Uh, I am in awe of her. Um, she was very generous with me and I did get to interview her and I got to um, look at her papers. Um, and I, I believe that she was concerned about her legacy. Um, and I think that's why she opened up um, to allow me to to talk to her and look at her work. Um, and she should have been like she I think she knew she deserved even back in the 70s. She wanted a better seat at the table. But the only thing people would listen to her about was the ERA and gender. So that's what she did. Um, and she kept trying to bring national defense, national defense. That's where she wanted to have the, the voice. Um, but she's an amazing organizer. Amazing. I tell my students, if you want to study organizing, you study Phyllis Schlafly and Ella Baker, because I think those are two overlooked women in history who were so good at inspiring people in a movement and really training people and bringing up, especially for Phyllis, confidence in women who didn't have it. So she would say, it doesn't matter if you didn't go to college. She trained them. She had 
makeup artist there to help people understand how to do their hair and makeup for TV. She had TV cameras there so they could practice being on TV. They did mock meetings with legislators. So, you know, she's doing all of this professional skills training that we're, we do with our students, right? Um, well, I'm not teaching mine how to do hair and makeup. I'll say that. Um, but you know, she's, she's really inspiring them to find their political voice. And she is, she does have such a huge influence. And I think, you know, the fact that she kept being pushed out of the Republican Party, ultimately, from outside the party, she pulled it further to the right. Um, and yet she deserves so much more credit for building the conservative movement in America than she than she's gotten. I so totally agree. I think the men in the Republican Party did not recognize her political talent. She was a political talent. Yeah. She had just incredible political talent and she was a mentor. Oh, I yeah. think of her as a mentor. She knew how to mentor other women into politics, which yeah. women didn't have that right. kind of mentorship because women were excluded from political leadership all the way up till really now. Yeah, have been and, marginalized. And she's really a model for how to have such a political influence while not holding office. You know, I always like to say that if she had won her congressional campaign, we would have an equal rights amendment because she would have been just one voice against it. But, you know, since she wasn't in Congress, she could inspire this nationwide grassroots movement. And, you know, we don't have an ERA now. I always talk about how she sh that Nixon should have put her in his cabinet. Yeah. And there were women writing to him saying she's part of why you got elected. You need to bring her into the cabinet. And there the women were very, very frustrated because she should have been the president of the National Federation of Republican Women um, in 1968. But she was one of the first casualties of the post Goldwater backlash against conservatives. So she actually gets kind of shoved out. Um, and well, they she doesn't get the presidency, which she should have because she was first vice president and it usually went in that order. So she left the party and formed the equal right, the um, Eagle Forum. And it's from the Eagle Forum that you get stop ERA. And then, you know, I, I really think it's there that she is building this family values conservatism that unfortunately we give, for some reason, Jerry Falwell gets the credit with um, the moral majority, but she did this work. She created the language. Um, she recruited pastors. Um, she recruited rabbis into this movement. She worked with the Mormons on this movement. She's the one who's doing this. And then, you know, he can swoop in and be like, look at this, look at this movement I created. And, you know, no one's like, hey, hold up, dude. No, no, no. You got to come back and give Phyllis the credit. Absolutely. So how do you think this brings us to today? What is the impact of these women in the Georgia Republican Party and in conservatism? How does it impact women in the party today? I was thinking about women like Sarah Huckabee Sanders and some other women who have really risen mm -hmm. uh, to leadership in the Republican Party now. Yeah, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia is one of the top fundraisers for the Republican Party now, the National Republican Party. Um, well, I think 
their greatest influence is in recruiting these voters. So when we look at any, especially in Georgia, you know, this is what I obsess about is all the numbers here. Um, you see that the solidly Republican voters are white women, that they're showing up in these huge percentages for Donald Trump, um, for Brian Kemp, um, that they didn't switch to Stacey Abrams. White women are voting um, Republican. And I think this goes back to, you know, showing showing the impact of these women in recruiting um, white women to be Republicans. Um, I think it, we are seeing that it is, it does make it a little harder though, because once you've been so successful at creating this vision of yourself as a housewife and as a mother, it's harder to run for office. So we're not seeing Republican women getting elected in at least, especially in Georgia, um, at the same rates as Democratic women. Um, they're having a harder time. We've had some cases in Georgia where Republican and Democratic women actually joined together in sort of gender <laughs> um, gender unity um, and bipartisanship to say that women aren't getting the leadership opportunities in the House and Senate that they should be getting. Um, so, so yeah, we're seeing that it's, it's harder, I think, for Republican women to be elected, um, but they are still showing up and they are some of the most consistent white women are the most consistent Republican voters. Um, so I think that's really where we're seeing the impact. Um, there are, of course, some exceptions, like I said, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, um, who's able to get elected. She's also running with that family name um, and the Trump background, right, um, having been his press secretary. Um, but I think, it, I think it can be a lot harder for women to, without those family connections, to make those leaps. To get the backing of the party, to get that line, to get the yeah, line on the ballot. Still, they're still looking to looking to men. And I think that's that's a place where the Republican Party has failed, that they haven't had as great an effort to recruit women into uh, running for office. Uh, you know, the Democratic side has had Emily's list for years. And the Republican Party, I, I'm blanking on the name of their organization, but they do have one now. But it can't, it's so late to the game. So we might see in the next few years. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen because there's also a lot of language of gender out there that it, it's, it's going to be hard. It's definitely an uphill battle. I think, I think we'll still see white women voting Republican, but maybe still not running for office. Yeah, it seems like women are still really bumping up against a lot of obstacles in the Republican Party. Even Nikki Haley, when she decided to run for president, it seems like her campaign is languishing a bit. Mm -hmm. Women like Christy Todd Whitman, kind of, who was the governor of New Jersey yeah. and was in the cabinet of George W. Bush's cabinet. You know, she really has pretty much been thrown out of the party because mm -hmm. she was too moderate. So I think that the that there are some talented Republican women, but they haven't been successful in having the full force of the party behind them to to get to that leadership position. Yeah, and I think right now with Nikki Haley, what's happening is it has become such a party of Trump. So every candidate is having to define themselves by his 
gravitational pull. And, you know, she is trying to define herself independently, but also as his UN representative. Um, I, I recently had a Facebook memory pop up um, of Nikki Haley shortly after the um, Charleston massacre. Um, where I said something about like, I guess we know who the VP candidate's going to be. I don't know who the presidential candidate in 2016 will be, but I think Nikki Haley just got the VP candidate. Uh, clearly, I was wrong. I am not a psychic. But, um, you know, she really was a rising star for a while. And now, you know, everyone has to respond to Trump. So it's all kind of thrown off at the moment. Um, I have to say that's one of my regrets. I wish I had gotten this book done before I had to deal with Trump at the end because he just kind of threw everything off. And then I think we still don't quite know how to write about him or how to think about him. Um, I know there's people who are trying, but you know, it's going to be interesting to see what, what these years have done to our political histories. Yeah. So what classes do you think would be appropriate to adopt this book I think that there are a number of different courses that would benefit from having this on the syllabus. So can, do you have any ideas how uh, yeah. a professor might incorporate this book into their, their course curriculum? Yeah, well, I do want to say that I did try to make it very tight and short so it wouldn't scare people off. Um, and I wanted to make it a book that the women I wrote about could read and understand and appreciate. So I think that also means that your students could. Um, so I think it can work in a U.S. political history class to explain the shift in the Republican Party to family values politics. I think it can work in women's history classes, but not exclusively. I mean, I really would like to challenge people who teach political history to include books about women in, in what you're doing, that it's not all the elected men. Think about the women who are doing that work at the grassroots level. Um, you know, I teach a class called Women in the New South. I could put it in there. I've also had some of my students in a history of conservatism class read chapters so I could make sure that it was working for undergrads. Um, so I think it can work in a variety of classes. Any modern American history classes, I think it could work in those as well. I think it's really an important moment for us to understand the new right and understand the rise of conservatism mm -hmm. and order to really drill down and understand the roots of where all this has come from, mm -hmm. especially as a lot of women are grappling with this post row reality. Right. And that's where I tend to tie it in as well in my classes to talk about the anti-abortion movement and how, and the anti-ERA movement, as you mentioned before, how it ties back to these, these historical and political origins. Yeah, and it's also so fascinating because officially the Republican Party endorsed the Equal Rights Amendment and the National Federation worked for the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, so yeah, seeing this shift and the influence of the outsider politics, I think is really important um, for for thinking of, you know, to challenge students to think about their own activism. You know, how are they identifying with a party? And, you know, how are they working from outside? Um, so I think it can help students think about politics as not just this big, um, sort of predetermined, untouchable thing, but it really does show the 
the uh, impact that one person can have or that one action can have, um, that registering voters really does make a difference. Um, and I think it also inspires a long game. So Lee A.Q. Miller once told me that there are no off years in elections, there are only pre-election years. So, you know, even when looking, like teaching history, we might say Goldwater had a big butt whooping, right, in 1964. She didn't say that. She said Georgia won. Goldwater won Georgia. She saw that as, you know, now we have this strength. And she kept working and working and working. Um, so it's also a reminder of the long game of politics for whichever side you're on. Um, that if you lose in November, there's another election coming. Oh, well, I'll tell you, I could talk to you all day about this, Robin. I have, I've just enjoyed this so much Thank and you. I love the book and yeah. I hope everybody takes a, takes a copy, buys a copy and enjoys it and assigns it to their students. So, so important to discuss these issues and this history. I want to thank Dr. Robin and Mars for joining me on the show today and for the terrific discussion of her book, Goldwater Girls to Reagan Women, Gender, Georgia, and the Growth of the New Right, published by the University of Georgia Press. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading. <laughs>